It's the TFT Podcast. That's Theory for Turntables. I'm Matt, and that's Ryan. Ryan, Johnny says sachet. Johnny gets his way. Matt, I'm not dreaming about Cartier when I wish, when I say I wish I had a rock. <laughs> and uh, we are not alone. We are joined by TFT punk correspondent Rachel D. Rachel, a girl can't leave her house these days and not feel like she's on display. Beware of cats that follow you home, of pretty prizes, wearing disguises. Give her some milk, and she'll purr as she bites through the bone. Si! Buonasera! 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 Amici, I'd be surprised if you recognized those lyrics. I certainly wouldn't have. We were talking about an album called Milano. By Daniele Lupi, uh, and uh, who is a um, an Italian composer. He's based in Los Angeles now, and he has uh, done some arranging for um, uh, Norris Barkley and other people. And uh, and for this this record um, released in October, which I think is supposed to evoke a certain spirit of. Um, like uh milan what is what is the adjective milanese milanese it, uh sort of youth culture um in a certain period like in a in a like post punk sort of era right like he enlisted the help of the uh the band parquet courts and uh the the enlisted the voice of the singer karen o from the yeah yeah yes so um it is i mean it is this collaborative effort it reflects an interesting vision and it uh it kind of would have flown under my radar had ryan and rachel not brought it uh brought it up and kind of uh, put it on the agenda for for what we're doing so so you two how did it get how did it get on your was it just in the like the 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 pitchfork orbit was is this like uh is this best new music or uh did it come to you through some other through some other vector it's definitely um, uh, adequate new music from Pitchfork. I, mean, I, th- I think it got a a, uh, a good, decent review. But I mean, you know that at this point, um, Parquet Courts is uh, Parquet Courts has been around for four or five years, um, and some of their other albums um, definitely have been best new music. And they're you know they're they're the kind of band that you know they do this sort of. Um, you know, you know, they're what they're nth nth wave post punk at this point, right? I mean, it's all post punk. Once punk happens, we're all post punk all the time. Uh, but they are kind of deliberately post punk. And when they came up, you know, they had references to a number of bands that I um, liked, uh, bands like the Feelies or the Minutemen or Wire, um, and and some other bands of the post punk revival of the early two thousands. So they've been on my radar. Um, for a while as, as um, bands that a band that's done um, cool things. And I saw that this project was coming up. I had seen kind of press reporting um, and, and saw that Karen O was attached. And I think first gave it a listen um, when it was, I think it was premiered or previewed on uh, NPR's first listen. And it, and it was just, it, 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 it met and exceeded expectations. I think this is actually my favorite thing that the band has done. Um, I think in part because um, of the collaboration, both um, with Karen O and kind of, it's actually maybe among my favorite Karen O things. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and I mean, the, the, the AAS albums are great, um, but certainly in terms of kind of a rawness um, and spirit is, is kind of a backdrop for her vocals and vocal performance that, um, um, we've uh, that I've not kind of really even seen since maybe like the first yeah yeah yeah's um, album. So I, I I I listened to it. Uh, you know, in our in our household unit, I'm the um, I'm the forager. I forage <laughs> forage for music, and I sift through a lot, um, and then I bring it back. Uh, and and punk correspondent Rachel D um, is the is the harshest is punk judge, punk jury, and punk punk executioner, uh, and and many things do not make it. 
past, uh, you know, even a partial play in our household unit. Um, but this is one uh, that I played and and Rachel uh, and Rachel liked quite a lot and has been a mainstay throughout the fall for us. Well, then, Rachel, what was it that got you that got you about this? Because it does not it is not immediately punk in terms of being like confrontational uh, on on a first listen. But what what aspects of it helped it pass the clear the bar? I, what made it clear the bar for me is that I, you know, I think in the, like the, some of the indie rock of the early two thousands, um, you know, I think would like in, would, would, would try to kind of recreate this Mm -hmm. kind of New York in the late seventies sound. Um, and, and then I guess like this, like kind of no wave sound, but to me, this just like immediately, it just kind of hit me. Um, you know, I think the, the vocalists in Parquet Courts, I, you know, it sounds, has this like really dead on, like, I don't know, Lou Reed meets Richard Hell kind of vocal impression or like Jonathan Richmond thrown in and, uh, the Karen O vocal performance is really good too. And then just like the, the songs themselves, just to me, to me, it really just sounded like, I don't know, like it, it just sounded like, I don't know, the lost Richard Hell. I really like say Richard Hell a lot, but like that's to me what it really reminded of, like the lost kind of, I don't know, some lost band that like played alongside like Richard Hell and television and, um, you know, had like a set, and you know, up up against those bands. Um, it just to me really evokes that that time and in that musical sound in, in a way that a lot of other things I think have, you know, said they're like influenced or inspired by that music have not really quite captured. Well, it's the it's the punk bands that once again or after punk happened in 77, 78, 79, then punk bands uh, in New York started listening to the Velvet Underground again. <laughs> right. And and so it's it's kind of Velvet Underground inspired um, post punk is kind of the the arc of of what you're you're describing. And what's really interesting though, is, and, and it's, I think, something that we can kind of unpack and revisit, is that, to my knowledge, this t- style of music wasn't particularly popular in Milan at the time, right? And so it's this, it's, it's the, the conceit is really interesting because it, the, the, the music that the, the time period, time and place that the music evokes in terms of the genre style is it is very concrete and very clear, but it's not the same one that the lyrical content of the album um, evokes. And it's it's odd, and I think it'll be worth considering what that is. Um, but sir, for like the first, you know, um, about you know, 500 listens or so, it didn't really matter because it's just, it was, it was the post-punk album that we were looking for um, because that's, you know, pretty much what we're always looking for. And we're, we're maybe just making do with other things. Um, But, uh, and, and, uh, but then, then I think as we were kind of digging in and looking more at the lyrics um, uh, over the course of this week, it's, it's really interesting how many of the lyrics are kind of, um, you know, really drenched in particular, you know, and, and embedded in, in particular people and places and, you know, objects that are associated with um, Milan in the 80s. And so you kind of then see that collaboration between um, Lupi, who grew up there at that time, um, and then these these kind of New York-centric um, and I think a bit younger um, bands and performers. I, I mean, yeah, it's it. It's interesting. I don't know a ton about Milan, right? Like, I feel like I know more about uh, this era in New York, right? Mm-hmm. And in the, and I guess like Parquet Courts are a New York band, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, being an American, I think of things as New York versus LA, and so like the the salient cleavage to me is East Coast versus West Coast in uh, in, in the United States with, with, okay. In- okay. Tupac. <laughs> like, <laughs> sorry. Uh, this is when I was, no. uh, this when I, I grew up in the nineties. Right. So that yeah, was, yeah, the, exactly. you know, that was the whole, <laughs> right. that was the whole thing, but the, the yeah, yeah. Like, you have your thug life tattoo now. <laughs> Daniele, Daniele, uh, has a thug life tattoo also, right? Like he had a, um, 
Did we cover? I keep forgetting. Did we cover blood sugar sex magic only, or did we do the getaway also? We did the getaway also uh, on yeah. our show, right? Yeah, we had chili peppers two ways, right? <laughs> so uh like uh uh, daniele had worked on had uh you know had worked on some arrangements or some producing for Ah. that uh for that record for for example and so like this is uh but then then uh parquet courts are are a new york band and i associate uh carano with new york for some reason um are they- yeah, I mean, yeah. The, the yeah, yeah, yeahs were part of that kind of first wave of Williamsburg, Williamsburg bands, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, right, right? Along with, uh, it's an amazing thing to kind of conversationally talk about the yeah, yeah, yes, because inevitably you'll say a fact about the yeah, yeah, yes, and then you'll go yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, and it's a yeah, yeah, yes loop. Uh, it's an infinite yeah, yeah, yeah feedback loop. Um, and well, I, and so I think that this is, I guess, uh, rather than build it out gradually i think that this is i think the connection is less explicitly with the um late 70s early 80s wave of kind of post-punk like the actual post-punk period in new york but that this style as i was saying earlier came back um it was the music of the of of kind of the sound of Williamsburg and kind of um 90s indie becoming 2000s indie in New York and so it was kind of the music of incipient gentrification um in in the lower east side uh first and then um in Williamsburg and so bands like the yeah yeah yeahs but also liars who were playing there the rapture um and uh a few others i mean lasavi fav was kicking around that scene um and so that it, i think that by choosing another, you know, making this post-punk music now, I, I feel like it's drawing the line between um, like early, late '90s, early 2000s um, uh, uh, New York. So going from the kind of post-Warriors, post-Giuliani into kind of booming, gentrifying New York, and drawing a line between that and and um, Milan in the 80s, which I think was going through a similar thing of kind of resurgence in art, design, culture, but uh, amidst also um, certain um, elements of kind of, you know, whether it's burnout or crime or, or inequality, right? And so I, I think that that's kind of the connection that's going on, um, is the, that's the kind of post-punk missing link um, that is kind of making this work as a music, because it's a music that's both artful, um, but also gritty, right? And and, the, and, and and so I think that, um, and especially as it gets repost, you know, and, and reposted, right, if you will, then uh, then then this idea of this juxtaposition of kind of of posing um, and and styling with the um, you know with a kind of a grittier kind of urban authenticity is is I think what what is getting at what was happening um, in Milan at the time. Yeah. Well, okay, we we should go deeper into into that uh, because it's really interesting. But we should give people a chance to listen to the album, so you can put us on pause. Uh, go listen to go listen to Milano, which is uh, you know like eighteen minutes long if you don't count the 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 free jazz section at the end. Um, the uh, no, it's a but it is it is a uh, it's not quite that short, but it is a short album and and might be good if you're going to go run five miles, say, or to you know um do do a 10k at a competitive speed or something like that uh you can go listen to listen to milano a couple times uh if you're not out active in the world if you're not uh running you'll be bopping you know and yeah. you'll kind of like you'll be humming the the uh, the hooks to yourself, like Talisa, Talisa, uh, and and uh, be the envy of all your friends by making a fool of yourself in public. Listening to uh, Milano by Daniele Lupi, and uh, meet us back here when you're done after this word from our commercial sponsor. Are you throwing or attending a holiday party this holiday season? Si, Buon Natale! (laughs) And I bet you're going to have to bring something, like some type of a sweet treat. Si, Principessa! (laughs) 
Well then, what? Uh, don't go empty-handed or slave away in the kitchen, but instead bring the holiday sweet treat that everyone wants: Pepperidge Farm Milano cookies. Oh, Kello, it's to be facente. <laughs> yes, that's right. The Milano is the most authentic of the cookies. Uh, it is a trademark dessert manufactured by Preverge Farm as part of uh, their European cookies. Each cookie consists of a thin layer of chocolate sandwiched between two biscuit cookies. Due biscotti? <laughs> yes. Did you know? But it wasn't always just duo biscotti. The Milano was created as part of Pepperidge Farm's original cookie concept, the Naples, which was a single vanilla wafer cookie with dark chocolate filling topping it. The problem this posed was that Naples cookies would end up stuck together, then shipped to and sold in warmer climates. The company resolved this problem by sandwiching Naples cookies together, creating the new Milano variety. Un solo biscotto ridicolo it is ridiculous but it's ridiculous no more because the milano uh is in its full 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 form and for a little extra extra uh seasonality try mint milanos chisaco di spazzatura <laughs> yes chisaco di spazzatura indeed uh, grazie milanos. grazie milano <laughs> Delicioso! Pepper Farm Milano and Mint Milano cookies for all your authentic Italian Christmas needs. <laughs> In noi ritorniamo, which is Italian for and we're back. I read about two-thirds of the Wikipedia entry for Milano per parentheses cookie. Uh, I used to eat those quite a bit. They're very dry. Oh, no. Well, yeah, they are. I like the I like the Pepperidge Farm cookie that was kind of like the shortbread. It was like a thumbprint, but it was a very intense thumbprint because the jelly section was like maybe an inch and a half around or two inches around, right? And it had the little shortbread rim. I could, I could really – I could demolish a uh, – I was a heavy kid. Um, you know, just as the other fact about Milano, which seems questionable, is M Milano cookies have primi primarily been marketed towards <laughs> elders, adults, teens, children, and infants. <laughs> Isn't that everybody? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> is anyone excluded it's, from it's, that? It's an amazing seg market segmentation strategy. <laughs> As as an as an indulgence food. Also, I an, an infant cannot eat a Milano cookie. No, definitely, definitely no. not. I suppose you could like crush one up, like get it wet, and let them kind of like scoop it up or like finger paint with it on a on a tray. But I mean, I feel to a certain extent like punk rock music is for elders, adults, teens, children, and infants. Yeah. And it truly is. Uh, it is indulgence rock, right? <laughs> it is not. It's the opposite. I mean, the Milano cookie is so interesting because like um i guess like on the surface like milano the album has very little to do with the city of milan right but as you dig deeper beneath the two stuck together layers of parquet courts and carano uh you find the chocolate uh, the, the authenticity of um uh of, of milan in the middle like the melted chocolate uh paste well yeah i mean that's that's interesting like is the music the chocolate or are the lyrics the chocolate Chocolate, right? Like, I, mm. I, and, and I think you're right initially. It's the music that's the chocolate because the, uh, it's the thing that kind of sticks. It, it's the thing that, that makes, mm. uh, makes even what is uneven. You know what I mean? It's the yeah. thing that kind of yeah. spackles in the cracks, uh, conceptually, as you will, and kind of creates a, uh, a, a unified experience. Um, you know, uh, in, in, now, uh, speaking of the music, Rachel, you used a term before that I had heard before, but that I realized I didn't totally understand, which was no wave. Um, what can, can you talk about no wave and why this, this record might sound like no wave? Uh, I will attempt to, uh, <laughs> it's, it was like a, it was a, I don't know, it was like a avant-garde rock, like rock music scene that followed, the kind of more like I think famous late 1970s New York punk bands. It was definitely like it had more of the like free jazz elements in it. It was like a little more like dissonant. Uh, 
um, and less like, uh, you know, I, it was like a little less like, uh, accessible i would say okay i can, i mean um, got it because i see it as like a confounding well i think the the music industry came up with the term new wave right in order to kind of market music after punk you know couldn't be marketed anymore right. in the same way that they kind of like they came up with the phrase electronica or the the term i should say electronica to market prodigy after like pop music and electronic music and and you know rock uh, and things like this had their kind of unholy uh, unholy child in in prodigy who well is that you may be prodigious but you are no prodigy sir mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know and so like I can see it being like this this uh, hey fuck you kind of reaction to the the music industry both in terms of like being a less commercial sound and have kind of, and having kind of a name that thumbs its nose that is you know satirical of the of the uh, new wave label right. Well, exactly. And I think it, it points out something that – and I know that one basis of it was um, you know, an idea that essentially of how how punk can you be if you really kind of sound sound like kind of sped up like girl group records yeah. or like sped up kind of Chuck Berry rock and roll, right? And so it's kind of rejecting you know, the basis of punk in still rock and roll and kind of moving just to weird, dissonant um, – weirder dissonant pieces, weirder – instrumentation more um uh confrontation um and and kind of more and and like experimentation with um electronics as well right the band uh suicide um Mm. i think was lumped into they were kind of early kind of synth uh pioneers and kind of had these very simple repetitive uh loops and kind of like and then lots of uh, exploration with kind of vocal patterns um and then kind of eventually i think i mean earliest sonic youth kind of comes out of that scene um and kind of then emerges eventually into something else but i think has its roots um in in no wave um as well yeah no i i think that's right and um it's interesting though because i i think i think the album still has like a lot in common with the kind of i think it's an interesting point like i guess like no wave makes of of you know like all of the more famous, more popular bands really do just sound kind of like old rock and roll or AM radio sped up or or girl groups sped up. Right. Like all those touch points are, are totally there. Um, and I, I think this, you know, I think this album sort of is is a good is it has like kind of touch points in both like both worlds. Right. Um, I think it has some very like pretty straightforward, uh, accessible song structures. And, you know, still though tips his hat with like that real epic saxophone jam at the end. <laughs> well, I, I do think, I mean, the, I mentioned this earlier, but I, I think an important connector there still is, um, is, is the velvet underground. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and just like, um, just as kind of, you know, especially the kind of I mean, just thinking about the the one that we discussed on this podcast, the Velvet Underground and Nico, um, and just the the bits of the you know what I kind of associate as right the two halves of that sound were you know Lou Reed's more kind of ultimately that had I think was more of the torch carrier for that kind of rock and roll songwriting and john kale was a little more of the layering of that kind of experimental noise right of the of the kind of things that descend into cacophony right and um and and the squeals and um distortions and 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 layers um and so you have kind of both pieces of that here and sometimes you know i think especially having listened you know a fair amount to the parquet courts um uh, discography that the the things that you I notice on this album that are not typically on Parquet Courts albums are a lot of the other instrumentation the 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 and sometimes which is melodic right like you know one of the early songs on this album is kind of a glockenspiel or bells um, but then that you have saxophone you have some kind of other kind of like little bits of noise or reverb that are kind of going less melodic and more kind of noise layering. Well, right. It's it's funny because like the uh, I suppose everything's a throwback at a certain level, right? And that that mm-hmm. like uh, this this is a throwback to like Great American Songbook times or like the music of the '40s or something like that, right? Like when there were when pop music had those like w- woodwind or more like mm-hmm. band almost orchestral instruments. Sometimes, like the first thing you hear uh, on this record, almost the 
first thing. It may not be the first uh, thing. Is Glockenspiel with um, yeah. with like strummed acoustic guitar behind it, and it's it's playing a melody that's like bum. Which is kind of like it's it's catchy, but it's also it's hashtag basic, right? Like it's 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 a little bit of a normcore, it's a little bit of a normcore melody where you could hear this like on you could imagine this not not on American Bandstand, right? Like where you could imagine slowed down versions of a lot of the popular music, popular music that I I gather No Wave was reacting against, but like you could hear it in the in a dance hall, right? Like in the in in between the wars or something like that or or uh you know it's music that your your grandparents parents might have kind of might have danced to and and music with that that thing and like gone you know you know what your your great grandparents probably boned to a record of something that was like so there's a there's a, a visual that you can't you know you can't get out of your head and so it's i don't know it's it is there is this weird uh, there's this weird aspect to it that I noticed that was like uh, it's not exactly theatricality because it's not actually it's it's designed for someone else to inhabit right but it is uh, uh, there is a kind of there is a kind of like um, uh, uh, well I guess theatricality is not a terrible way to put it there's a kind of dress up you know what I mean mm-hmm. there's a kind of like putting on uh, putting on your parents clothes or grandparents clothes right or the, or this is like uh, it's like it's like going to a themed party is what it's like mm-hmm. right yeah. like where get where everyone has to it's not exactly costumes right but it's you're supposed to dress in a particular way uh, uh, for the party and you kind of recreate you kind of recreate in an in, in ambiance you know and uh, so just in terms of I mean in terms of our sort of discourse of of authenticity mm. i mean it's it's a it's an interesting you know it's an interesting thing because of the the uh the tra- dress up aspect of it well, and I guess in that way, right, Daniele is throwing the party, right? And that's kind of one of his he's, – he's throwing the party, but he's also a good host, right? He's not just – when you throw a party, you don't just open your door and let the people come in and then say, all right, you take it from here, guys, right? Um, and so by throwing the theme party, um, you know, it's it's that – he kind of creates this opportunity and adds certain elements um, to this. And then um, the, the kind of primary guests of, of Parquet Courts and Karen O oh both interpret the theme in their way. Right. And, and so it's an interesting kind of, because any kind of theme party like this, um, and even more explicitly um, costumey parties, you, you know, generally, I mean, you may be uh, a, a real jerk and like, you know, not obey the theme or kind of, you know, really, really push it. But generally, you know, if you're going to this kind of party, you're going to buy into the the premise, but then put your spin on it um, within that rule. Right. And so that that kind of cre- that the constraint is a lens through which you express something about your worldview, but it is going to be a bit of a, a play acting or a pose because that is what was, um, that was what was asked for, right? Th- those are the rules of, of the kind of play that you are in, um, entering in the space that you're entering. Yeah. I just funny. I don't, I don't see dress as a vehicle for self-expression. I mean, you've seen, <laughs> you, you've seen, You've seen what yeah, I that, wear. That, yeah, that's not a pose. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's. I just have a uniform. <laughs> it's something no one ever said. <laughs> uh, uh, Rich, have you been to any good themed parties? <laughs> uh, no, I. I mean, I do think. I, I do think the idea of viewing the album is kind of like a, a themed party does invite i don't know i mean most of the time you know good art comes from like some kind of constraint and i think this is like an interesting like idea and constraint to like play off of um you know and in particular i think it's you know it's tight enough to like inspire interesting ideas and yet because the musically it doesn't have to be something that like would actually play in like the milan of the 1980s um 
you know, it, it can be, it can be just kind of like a, a kind of like almost, I don't know. To me, it's like this kind of like a, the music of transitional city or cities in transition, you know? Um, you know, as like Ryan said, that is kind of the connection between this and like the, the New York sound, both like, um, in, in its late seventies, early eighties iteration. And then the kind of like, you know, early Williamsburg version. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's interesting, right? Because it's, we're talking about, about places that are shifting between two identities, right? In the, and we've, we've talked to death about the, the gentrification of various U.S. cities. I think something similar happened, according to Wikipedia, something similar happened in Milan in the 1980s, owing to, uh, largely to a lot of high glamour businesses like fashion, uh, you know, and Italian labels, uh, I should say houses, uh, Amanda will, will be mad at me if I call them labels like Italian houses like like uh, Versace and Dolce and Gabbana and um, you know that that this is uh, and that so there's this influx of uh, beautiful people there's this influx of creativity and there's this kind of influx of economic activity uh, and that follows kind of a depressed period because like New York wasn't the only city with a long slow uh, decline into the into the warriors right like it, there was um uh, uh, a sort of lull, or there, there were some sort of like sixties or seventies, like disorder, like basic disorder type things. If, if, uh, if my knowledge can be re- relied on, um, well, and Italy was still at that point only a few like decades out from being at the center of you know fascism and a world war. Let's well, fair enough. Forget. Yeah, yeah, the trains had stopped running on time, is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, and 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 when they stopped running on time, they really did, right? But a lot of the growth that um that that returned was kind of driven by northern Italy, um, is you know what is kind of received, um, and and eventually the trains trains started running on time again, but but. Democratically, uh, <laughs> um, and 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 through this kind of fusion, like you say, of kind of glab- glamour business um, and um, and 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 finance. I mean, it's interesting. So we were we were in Milan um, earlier this year as part of a trip through Italy, kind of starting in Rome and working northward. And kind of um, Milan was the northmost extent. And you have this sense. Milan is interesting because it is uh, you know absolutely an Italian city, but it's kind of three things. It's an Italian city um, because that is where it is. That's the language that is spoken, and you you still have you know the the types of many of the types of cafes and restaurants that you have reflect that. Um, but it is, a, a, as you say, kind of a global city. I mean, in ways that I think are up there with the most kind of globalized cities that we've been to of the New Yorks and and Londons, um, you know, really has this sense of a, a, of a of a hub. But it's also a, you know, the southernmost northern European city, right, that it has a kind of v- certain vibes. Um, and, you know, we were there in the winter, so it definitely felt the most wintry <laughs> of where we were. Um, and, and maybe that accentuated and, you know, the days were the the shortest as as we were there but there was a a vibe and and i don't know originally you can speak to this that that reminded me of kind of switzerland germany austria um as much as it did of 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 italy and and there's something about that kind of more germanic leaning element that um is is kind of interesting about milan as well um i know i definitely i definitely felt that um I mean, you definitely like you see in like the desserts and the food like yeah. definitely has um, you see kind of where like Switzerland and, and um, you see where like their kind of closest neighbors kind of like inf- are influencing like the, the regional food of Milan. Um, I'm just like I'm just like I'm not like remembering really specifically just I remember seeing a lot of things that are kind of like more like had like kind of Swiss chocolate in them or like kind of played with things that like were kind of um, kind of more traditionally kind of Swiss Germanic-y type heaviness, like a a kind of heaviness to the food. Um, That's like different from like the kind of heaviness of some of the uh, other kind of regional cuisines of Italy. Um, and then, yeah, and I did feel like there was this kind of more of this kind of uh, 
that though like the those other countries uh, were more of like cultural touch points than um than they were in let's say like other parts of Italy right which are not as obviously close to um those neighbors it's close to it it's also i mean it's just it's far north like i usually think of of italy being uh, not italy <laughs> i usually think of europe being sort of rectilinear right with like italy being the bottom and like the greek islands being the bottom and going up towards in the direction of london right and like maybe scotland being the top or something like that and like mm-hmm. it's not it's on a diagonal at that point so like mm. the number of things that milan is north of like it's north of nice and uh, you know, the, the South coast of France, um, you know, it's North of, uh, all of Spain. It's North, it's North of, uh, of, uh, a lot of stuff. And like beyond the, like, um, this is an interesting affinity. Like I I was aware in my limited understanding of like Northern versus Southern Italians is of like, you know, the Northerners are uptight and the, 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 uh, Southerners are, are shiftless and, and wastrels and whatever. Uh, the Northerners cook with butter and dairy and the Southerners cook with olive oil, right? Like that there are these superficial differences, but like, I, I hadn't thought ever to kind of relate it to, uh, relate it to being a Northern European city. And that's a, that is a, a really interesting thing. And it does sit like there are what, like four or five or six countries, like an easy striking distance of, yeah. of Milan. And so it, yeah, probably, you know, has those, has those influences. I, I sort of think of it because I feel like the design language, the, like the Italian modernist design language that was established during that time is, uh, the, the kind of like default interior decorating mode of the giant box, like luxury apartment that are just destroying the landscape in West L- <laughs> in West LA. Like if you go into one of these like six story because they get like zoning exemptions to put six story apartments in, you're you're gonna walk in and it's gonna be like the you know the very flat uh, cabinets with the the like the long thin metal drawer pulls uh, and um, you know the the uh, you know the counters are gonna be these these like uh, these uh, flat like uh, what. I don't even know what the the material is like melamine or so or something. I'm sure there are higher and lower end versions of it, uh, and, you know. And it's it's going to have this sort of uh, Italian design, um, kind of nineteen eighties like modernism, but sort of throwback modernism to. Uh, uh, to it and like it's it's interesting. It, so uh, this is a, the kind of the larger point that that I wanted to make. It's interesting that that when cities are in transition, art can have an, a very enduring identity, right? Like because the music of uh, which which you guys are calling like the music of transitional Williamsburg or what I identify as like a strong visual design uh, language that endures to this day and admittedly very. Um, uh, a very debased form, right? Like these are very strong, definite statements that happened at a time when other parts of the culture, maybe other parts of the society, demographics, economic development, and things like this were were uh, were sort of in transition. Um, and that, so that like the graph, it, they don't track each other. It's like a graph of a sine versus a cosine or something like that. And it's, I don't know if it's a leading or a trailing indicator, but that like strong artistic output and strong artistic identity, especially like a sound or a, uh, uh, a sound or a kind of characteristics that you can point to and say that belongs there might belong to societies that are less stable than, than, uh, than established. Yeah, I think talking about kind of modernism and uh, Italian modernism and the um, and, and the durability of it, I think it is interesting kind of thinking about one of the songs that addresses this. I think a number of the songs kind of talk about this kind of transition um, lyrically, um, but one that I think just because we were talking about design um, that does this is Memphis Blues again, right? Which is a song that is just like about and from like the perspective of the founder of the, um, you know, the Memphis design group and the kind of Memphis 
Milano movement, right? And that, that song um, starts with functionalism's a bore, modernism's a chore, Bauhaus school makes me snore, right? Why do people adore steel tubes bent to a frame? All their shit looks the same. Like Corbusier's a shame. Yeah, he's mostly to blame. Peter Shire built a chair and he called it Bel Air. Critics said too much flair. Peter Shire didn't care. Minimal, minimalism's absurd. To me, it's just a word. I wished I'd never heard. Don't you know there's a third? After function and form, makes you feel nice and warm <laughs> makes you question the norm lets you stay from the swarm yes emotion makes three it makes objects complete go ahead take a seat in Michele de Lucci uh, why should it not have dots why should it not have lots um Will you tell me why not? Are you artists or cops? Right, and and then this is kind of this describing this kind of uh, you know manifesto and the mo of this uh, design that kind of actually broke from um, this modernism um, in Milan, right? And if you kind of do a, a Google image search for Memphis Milano, right, it is. I mean, it's, it's it's the look of the 80s. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. like basically like what Saved by the Bells, like uh, <laughs> the, the the Max's place looked like. Yeah, you're totally it was right. in like the full house bed spreads. I mean, like every single like early 90s touch point and like 80s, like this was yeah, like everywhere. Early, I feel like it's like early 90s. 90s. Um, it's what your trapper keeper looked like. I mean, yeah, it's it's like what um, Back to the Future thought the future would look like, mm-hmm. right? Like this is what um, you know 2016 um, looked like from the perspective of 1986, right? <laughs> um, and it's it's incredible, right? It's it, and and you see because there's a lot of just wild pattern and asymmetry and playfulness um and it, i mean it has very it's a, there's a, i think to my memory there's a very peewee's playhouse kind of yeah. vibe to it as well yeah. right he was um, a memphis milano fan i think oh was he and, um, <laughs> and bowie was as well right so david bowie, bowie had a, a huge collection i think it was just recently auctioned off um after he passed away and carl lagerfeld as well mm-hmm. yeah lagerfeld is like yeah this. he was like all memphis milano um, no, it's it's definitely like the look of the eighties. Um and, and it is it is interesting because I do agree that like the kind of the modernism is like sort of what we see now. And I think that kind of like mid century look is what is what is like really like die hard in style, like what every tasteful person gets, right? Um, Sometimes it, you just want to be tasteless. Right? <laughs> like, and, um, and I do like yeah, I appreciate sort of like I, I love how this is like a song that like explicitly is like this kind of meta is this defense. It's this pretty explicit defense and like um uh you know, like yeah, it's like a defense of like the the idea behind uh this Mentis Milano design movement. But I you know, it, it is interesting. I do think there's something kind of you know, a lot of these pieces are sort of excessive and um they have a lot going on. I mean, they're hot. They're like, you know, they're, they're very, they're very strong. <laughs> well, also you, you kind of can't have just one of these pieces. No, I think <laughs> like, that's true. Once you go a little bit Memphis Milano, you got to go the whole way. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think that's true. I don't think these things just kind of blend in with their surroundings. Um, I mean, they all kind of have to live with, with each other. I don't know. Um, like, to kind do, of form their own little environment. You, you don't think you could do one or two just nice accent pieces, you know, a, a coat rack or something <laughs> that, uh, you know, that's painted, that's painted like uh, a teal and, and magenta uh, rather than, rather than having to do the whole thing in, in chairs with no, no actual chair on them. I mean, this is interesting. Like, the color scheme is very much like this furniture would live in the world, uh, the visual language of um, the most recent St. Vincent album, right, of mass mm-hmm. seduction, right? It's like the exact same kind of world in terms of, of both angles um, and and colors. Um, I, you know, I, I, the other thing I love about this song, right, kind of going back to the lyrics, um, is so that the um, Memphis Milano Memphis Collective um, got its name from a, um, a Dylan song, right? As the um, stuck in 
stuck inside of Mobile with the Memphis Blues again. Um, but they, in the, the chorus, right, they change it. We're stuck inside the salon of Mobile. Um, we're, we're stuck inside the salon. Of, uh, we're stuck inside with the Memphis Blues again. And I think right, uh, a salon of Mobile would be a furniture store, right, or a kind of room mm-hmm. of furniture. Um, and, and so, um, and, and and it's like it, you know, I, I think that there's this interesting. What do I think that there there is this. I, I think building the song around this, a it makes it kind of circular, right? Because the the Dylan song, like the kind of founders, Eture, and the um the founders of this kind of listened to that song on repeat as they were kind of having their meeting, the the first um, meeting of the Memphis Design Collective, um and and so I don't know, I I think there's something about the idea though about being stuck in the furniture store, right, mm-hmm. or in, in the um uh in the in the furniture room. Um, and, and I, I see that there's both, um, I guess it's like this idea of trying to break out. Um, and I, I guess what I was going to say is that I wonder if there is, you know, given the kind of fashionability of the kind of, um, modernism and the kind of neo-modernism, you know, that the, the, there's a kind of rebelling against, um, against that itself, right? So that kind of taking some kinds of points of inspiration from the kind of garishness um, uh, and and emotion um, and, and kind of vibrancy of of Memphis Blues in in um, in the face of much more styled, whether it's design or very kind of styled and kind of mannered and kind of um, composed music. I don't know. I think there's so it's like it is, it, you know, it's a there is a um, a kind of punkness there, although it is relative punk, right? It is not necessarily absolute punk, but it's punk relative to where, you know, the kind of, um, you know, in, in where the, the kind of current punk dialectic stands. But that, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Well, you know what I'll do is I'll put in the show notes, some, some examples of both the kind of the, the very spare Italian modernist design and the, the, uh, Memphis, um, uh, the you know Memphis style Pee Wee's Playhouse design where you could just imagine St. Vincent bending over in a corner uh, in, <laughs> yeah. a, in a day glow colored leotard and tights. Um, the, the- I just want to point out one thing. The Salon de Mobile is also a major Milan furniture fair. Oh, is it? Every year, yes. Oh, interesting. Yes. So, so, so it's not just a, so this it's is not just the first. It's, it's like it's not a salon de mobile. It's, like it's the. It is. It is the salon de mobile. Oh, uh, baby, when it's I. Like- when I take you it's to Milan, the furniture fair. <laughs> I'm going to take you to the salon of mobile. <laughs> um, in the song musically, I think it's I, it's expressed a little bit with the uh, the instrumentation, right? Because this song is pretty um spare in its orchestration like the beat is kind of a is like a clunky uh, chick uh, chick beat and like chucka 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 guitar right uh almost in a in a very austere way that that is not unlike some of the post-punk stuff that that we covered on this podcast um but then there's this like synthesizer sound that plays that kind of plays against that and like in that in that kind of the whimsicality of that, right? It yeah. it manages to kind of enact or or demonstrate yeah. the te- the tension yeah. between a, a staid and a, a more whimsical kind of mentality, and do it in the in terms of the 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 sonics. It's interesting because in some ways I feel like the song almost recreates the experience of like the original sort of like a, the creation myth of this movement, which is that they like all met together, like these, the Ettore and friends met together to discuss, like, I guess, furniture design. And they kept playing this Bob Dylan song over and over again. And I think like, there's something about the repetitiveness Mm. of the song. And then the vet did explicitly also kind of is like a misreading in the course of the Bob Dylan song they played. Right. Because the Bob Dylan song is about being stuck in Mobile with the Memphis Blues, right? Right, and here they're stuck inside the Salon of Mobile with the Memphis Blues again, and then it kind of restarts the song, so to speak, right? 
Uh, and it's almost yeah, like the, it's like this is the meta. This is like the reenactment of the meta conversation. Yeah. Uh, to the like Bob Dylan playing over and over and over. This is the furniture store that never ends, right? right. <laughs> it just goes on and on, my friends. <laughs> Some people started designing it, not knowing what it was, <laughs> but they'll go on designing it forever just because yes. this is the furniture store that never ends. <laughs> 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 I mean that's and, and given how this stuff at least the maybe the less uh the less inspired and the more uh the more state Italian design kind of has made a comeback uh you know in the form of of tasteless urban professionals who with with too much money um you know maybe it does go on and on my friend maybe it um, maybe it never maybe it never ends well, I think if there are, you know, urban professionals with too much money, then I think then the, the other truism is that there will be people who are going to um, to to jack them. Right. Um, and so I think that the other one to talk about and uh, uh, is we, we've not really talked about too many of these songs that feature Karen O um, and at least one other one to talk about is Pretty Prizes. Um, right. Which is um, the the kind of um, <laughs> the the femme fatale solution to to the notorious B.I.G. I got a story to tell problem, right? Which is the, like, that you know, I got a story to tell is the, B. I., the biggie, one of several biggie narratives of kind of, um, you know, robbing, home robbery. Um, I mean, I guess in, in Got a Story to Tell, it is a um, affair that is covered up by becoming a robbery and, and uh, abduction type scenario. Um, but that this uh, is one that kind of actually has a similar arc that is a affair that... Um, um, of a uh, between a younger woman and an older man that becomes a robbery. Um, I know Rachel, this is a song that you like a lot um, on the album, right? Yeah, no, um, I do like this one. I think it's. Uh, I mean, I don't know if I have like really intelligent thoughts about why I like it so much, other than it's <laughs> <laughs> melodically maybe my favorite. Uh, I know I like. I mean, I like the content too. Um, I like the Carano uh, chorus, kind of like. I know it's interesting. The Carano chorus is both like part Greek chorus. Um, and then she also kind of shifts into the perspective of the woman, um, and which makes me want to note something that is also kind of interesting about this album is that a lot of the songs are from the perspective of a woman, whether or not they're sung by Carano. Or or, they're, yeah, or, by, or by the like the, the deep kind of baritone voice of Parquet Quartz's um, Andrew Savage, right? Right, and it's interesting. In fact, I think more of the songs when Karen O does sing, they're more meta. Yeah, and Karen O is like a kind of like it has like like she's not necessarily giving like a first person perspective. There's there's more like a kind of like experience, like the a narration of the city or of, of an experience. Right, she's the spirit. She's the spirit. Uh, uh, Karen O is the spirit of Milan. Um, or on like on the Golden Ones, she's like kind of. I think she's kind of a drug, right? Mm-hmm. She's the pill that you're taking um, that is making you wacky, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> No, right. And even like the the flush, you know, it's Oh yeah, yeah. I I think it's like it's like a lot more it's a lot more abstract, right? Right, um, it's about cuz that's about like the kind of eels in your brain, right? Mm-hmm. Like um what is it the line is like um like like my brain goes down the drain. Um um yeah, and that's like a lot less about you know, from a perspective, right? Um, you know, sweet waters on my brain flushed down the drain, um, mixed in the gutter with the rain, and here we are back again, right? It's, it's um, you know, it's a, and right, the uh, crustaceans dancing fuck in the waters of my brain, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, if it's either kind of like the spirit of the city or it's someone who's so zonked out that they are, they become one with the city. And I think that that's, um, you know, if you know, Karen O has a lot more of that kind of no wavy perspective in the vocal mm-hmm. performance of being kind of less of a clear kind of character and more of this someone who's um, faded into the city. Well, this was and, and- by the by the way, this was like an explicit theme of uh, some of the songs on Marquee Moon uh, that was like that were like about yeah. go- going for a walk outside and kind of like the different parts yeah. of your body becoming. Uh, I don't remember it exactly, but becoming like parts of the city or becoming like permeated somehow by by yep. parts of the city. 
Well, fall, you're right, falling into the arms of the Venus de Milo, right? Yeah, um, you, right, uh, exactly. And this is like, this is here in in uh, in Pretty Prizes, right? Like, a little bit, the art is like this this facsimile Francis Bacon painting right. uh, on, the dude's, on the dude's walls, right? Yeah, totally. Um, and that's, so that, and that's very interesting, right? Just the, the, like the, the art is fake, but the gun is real. Right? <laughs> um, um, and, uh, and it's also great, right. That, um, she says, right. It's a unused Beretta, um, which is, I think a really interesting detail, um, of, of that. I mean, it is interesting because it is being used, just not fired. Right. Cause it's like, once you're like, um, you know, coercion or threat or deterrence is a kind of use, mm. um, you know? Uh, and so that's kind of interesting is that you are, you are using it. Um, you're just not firing it. So there's, uh, there's a little ambiguity in, in the final lyric of this song that, that I, w- that I would like to point out. Um, yeah. The geniuses of genius have annotated this lyric, and I guess maybe they have some sort of canonical source that I don't know about, but that uh, when when the guy is tied up in the closet, right, uh, mm. the, the, the fear in his eyes, and his eyes say, how could you? My pretty prize. Now, the the geniuses a genius have this have that say how could his eyes say how could you, and then the mm. woman refers to him as my pretty prize, right? But the thing it could easy, just as easily be uh, that say how could you, my pretty prize? That's how I always heard it. Yeah, yeah. you're right. Right. That yeah. like that the guy that the guy thought the woman was a pretty was a pretty yeah. prize, and even in his you know robbed and and tied up state. Right. Like still refers to her that way, still hasn't sort of made discursively the leap uh, that the woman has has uh, taken his unused Beretta, has sort of seized the phallus, you know, from uh, from out of his uh, safe. And, uh, you know, and and now is he's the he's the prize. Yeah. Yeah. You're the prize now, dog. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. It's, it's there in the, um, the, the kind of chorus that Rachel was talking about earlier, the quote, right. It's the, and it's mentioned a few times, right. Of, um, right. Um, he calls me his kitten. Right. Um, and, um, right. And then when, when Karen O comes in is beware of the cats that follow you home of pretty prizes wearing disguises. Um, and so that this, there's this kind of, um, there, there's this threat, um, uh, that, that is, is kind of buried inside, you know, innocence or kind of what is expected. Um, and it's even there, right. Um, as that kind of, um, right. It's that, um, you know, into the Fendi, uh, is, is where the, uh, the money is going. And I, th- that set of things of kind of after the Beretta, um, in the kind of, um, sexual double entendre, right. Between the, the, and the, the parallels between the sex and the, um, robbery are really interesting, right. It's, um, um, unused Beretta, careful that's loaded. Well, how convenient I smile as I stroke it, um, into the Fendi, I scream unload it. Um, confused submission faster. I scold scold him. him. Yeah. Yeah. That whole thing is like super sexual, right? (laughs) (laughs) Super, super sexual. Um, and it's interesting because it's almost like you kind of wonder in some kind of odd way, like to what extent is this like, is this the guy's like kind of like actually like desired like uh like subdom play? <laughs> you know? Like like in some sort of maybe not like like in the kind of conscious conscious mind of this of this old man, but that like you know, it's like the that 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 like this was the play acting all along, right? And in some ways, it's like this is this is the play acting he hoped for in some sort of uh, maybe not totally conscious way, um, you know, to to be sort of to have that like uh, to be dominated in this way. Yeah. Well, it is interesting, right? Because early in the first verse, right, um, the, the like, because he fancies new things for his collection, but they in- expire in time like his erection. All right. Um, and, and I mean, there's this interesting idea of, right. Like, what do you get for the Italian businessman who has everything? <laughs> um, and the answer is a harrowing, a harrowing robbery. It's like, <laughs> right? yeah, it's like that, uh, with that David Fincher movie, right. Where Michael Douglas goes on like an adventure that, 
that was actually stage managed by a, uh, you know, by a, a, a fancy company. What was oh, I, it? I, th- I thought you were going to talk about the um, the the David Fincher movie where Gwyneth Paltrow's head ends up in a box. <laughs> What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? <laughs> um, that's. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's well, you know, and, and this is the I mean, this is the interesting thing, right? Like desire, if you sort of link desire to art and to possessions and to kind of acquisition and things like this, that these things, these things are finite, right? Like desire, uh, you know, desire expires um, and the fashionability of all the things that you have expires. That's why uh, I have a uniform. <laughs> oh, oh, you do, my pretty prize. <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh, it might it might be time for all of us pretty prizes to uh, to call it on Milano. Uh, we hope you uh, like the album. Uh, if you want to say anything about it, we're in all the usual places: Twitter, Facebook, and uh, the comments on the show notes for this episode. Head to the comments. I'm going to put some uh, I'm going to put some images and things like that into the uh, I'm going to put some images into the sh- into the show notes, and you'll get a little slideshow of the the uh, uh, Italian. Modernism and the the sort of Memphis school or the Memphis group uh, and their reaction against it. We'll be back with more TFT podcast next week. A few more weeks before we uh, before we switch back to uh, to history and uh, actually go to that time. You know, go to that uh, transitional time in music and in New York post Giuliani, pre nine eleven, pre pre gentrification, Williamsburg uh, uh, music. Uh, We'll we'll probably uh, at least get close to some of those next time, but 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 not yet, not yet, my pretty. We're prize. gonna slow, man. There are a lot of Limp Biscuit albums that we have to cover in 1998 <laughs> before we get to the early 2000s. You know, 1998 had albums from Limp Biscuit and Dave Matthews Band, and we're just gonna wallow it like pigs in poop. <laughs> oh, God. All right, into into the Fendi. Uh, <laughs> all right well whether you want to listen to uh limp biscuit whether you want to whether you want to listen to uh historical play acting from milano historical play acting from uh, uh of uh old chuck berry songs just sped up uh historical play acting of uh your you know your great-grandparents boning whatever you're into <laughs> please keep it real